All of our praise this morning is to some extent inspired by the 31st Psalm, a very rich psalm. Um, I'm entitling the, the sermon, In the Lord I Put My Trust, and that theme of trust comes through um, in so many of the aspects of this psalm. The 31st Psalm is by far the longest psalm that features in our focus group series. Um, as you may know, the chapter divisions were not used or added until the 12th century when an English priest named Stephen Langton, it's a very ghostly looking figure there that comes up on that one, it's not so bad up there. <laughs> um, I was beginning to think I had a negative, the one at the back. Um, Stephen Langton became a, a cardinal in time. Uh, and he originally added the chapters to the Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate. There was a division that was then added to the Hebrew Bible and carried over into the Bibles that began to be published at the beginning of the Reformation era. The verse divisions, however, came later, as late as 1551. Uh, the work of a man named Robert Estienne, uh, otherwise known as Stephanus, a Paris printer who later published for John Calvin. I thought I had a picture of him, but it's not there. Um, the true measure of the length of a psalm then is not so much the chapters or, or even the, the verse divisions, which are, you know, in a sense are a bit artificial, but in the number of words used. Um, the number of words used in the first four psalms of the focus group series have been around 141 to um, 207 with an average of 177. A bit of useless statistic. But if I then tell you that Psalm 31 contains 483 words, you would realise that were we to try and look at the psalm as a whole, there would be an awful lot more material to try and cover today. And if truth be told, there's enough material in this psalm for at least half a dozen sermons without repetition. Hence the reason why there were two sizable chunks skipped over in our Bible reading today. Sections that I will at best allude to rather than speak to this morning as we try to unpack something of the poet's understanding and his faith, his absolute trust in God. The psalm commences, of course, with a statement of that trust or confidence. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge, or more traditionally, in you I have put my trust. And it immediately follows with two petitions. Never let me be put to shame and deliver me. The first verse in the oldest Hebrew manuscripts indicate that David was the author of this psalm. And yet the biblical scholars Charles and Emile Briggs claimed that the composer of the text knew of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel 
and many of the psalms that they date to the Persian or Babylonian period. This was the time of the exile when the Jews were forced to live far from their homeland. So, yeah, maybe that was the time when they were brought together in the collection, but does that mean that that's how old they are? No, I don't think it does by any, any manner of means. Because could it not be the case that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other psalmists cited sources that came from Psalms? It's a bit of a circular argument. If you can argue that the writer of the psalm knew these prophets, then you can equally argue that the prophets knew the psalms. So I don't think you can be too definitive about that. It certainly fits this psalm with the idea of David being the author. It certainly reflects the time when David lived as an outlaw during the reign of Saul, and fits in with Saul's suspicion of him. Even though David proved at least twice that he was no threat to Saul's throne. Yes, he was anointed, but he would wait his time. One of the occasions came when Saul went to do the toilet in a cave in which David and his men were hiding, and David cut off a piece of his robe. And then said, hey Saul, look what I've got. I'm no threat to you. I could have killed you, but I chose not to. The other one was when they went into Saul's camp, which is what's depicted up there on the screen. Saul was, was camped at Hykelah, and David and another man sneaked in, and they took the king's spear and the water container to show again how close he had come to Saul and could have killed him, but didn't. No regicide in David's heart. Going back, however, to the actual text of the psalm, the two metaphors that David uses, that of God as rock, and as fortress, respectively mean a defensive shield and a protective enclosure. God, you're my shield and the place in which I can feel safe. And these two metaphors, at least, certainly speak of a time when David felt himself under attack, not his kingdom, but he personally, which seems to me to suggest that it was in that earlier phase before he became king. The personal nature of this feeling of attack, I think, is affirmed by verse 9. Because it mentions there the effect on his eyesight. It mentions his physical deprivation as well as his spiritual anguish part of the verses that we actually skipped over. But I refer to them there. Now, why these particular afflictions? Well, yeah, David was by no means an old man. But living very rough 
from day to day not knowing where he was going to get his food, where he was going to find shelter, undoubtedly took its toll on his physical well-being. But no matter what David faced, his faith in God remained unflinching. And he asked these particular favours of God, not for his own sake, but for God's. It was always for God's glory and David's part as a secondary to that in giving God his glory that he sought to have affirmed. For David had a clear sense of his mission. Remembering well the days of his anointing by Samuel. The purpose of which was as yet still to be fulfilled and was still some way off. And so in the words made more famous by Jesus, as our Redeemer, reciting them from the cross, David committed his spirit into God's hands with a prayer for deliverance. Into your hands I commit my spirit. This is what I'm facing, God, but I trust in you. And so at the end of the day, I leave it all in your care. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Trust in the Lord. The second part of the psalm that we are looking at this morning deals with the question of destiny. I asked Davy and the band to sing earlier another song that's inspired by verse 15. It was originally in an old redemption hymn, but much more uh, modern version of these words. My times are in your hands. And that's the main theme as this psalm develops. There's an old Scottish saying which I suspect very few here of, amongst us will never have heard. There may be one or two outsiders for seem, it would seem strange, but if you haven't come into contact with it, I'd be very surprised. What's for you, I'll no go by you. It's a very Calvinist saying and a very Calvinist underlying concept. The idea that one's life path is predetermined or as Calvin himself put it in his institutes God freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass let you think about that for a moment it's quite mind blowing God freely and unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass Now his teaching in this regard is based on passages like Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is God's Lord's purpose that prevails. <clears throat> or perhaps from Isaiah chapter 14 verse 24. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. But this should not be misunderstood as some sort of robotic manipulation of human life 
It applies primarily to one's ultimate destiny and relates to whether or not your life is directed towards or away from God. God himself affording you the choice. If you make that choice for good, as David did, then it offers absolute assurance of salvation in Christ. For as Paul said in his letter to the Romans, we know that in all things God works for good, for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. David's thoughts are perhaps more simply expressed. I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Is that a profession of faith and a declaration of trust that you have found yourself able to make? And if not, what is it that holds you back from being able to trust absolutely that the Lord knows what he's about and will only do good for you in the bigger scheme of things? I'll give you just a moment or two to pause and think of that. But of course, David doesn't leave it there. And neither should we, for faith, trust, is not a passive thing. David goes on to ask, in the circumstances in which he found himself, to ask God to deliver him from his enemies, from those who pursue him. And I'm sure that every one of us has something if not someone from whom we desire deliverance. If we want to walk in the paths of righteousness, then we need to ask God to keep us on the straight and narrow and not to be led astray by those who do not have God's ways in their hearts. Do we not pray earlier as we do week by week, deliver us, from evil, from the temptations of life, from those who would lead us astray. Go with the flow can never be a Christian response. Only go with God. David's prayer continues. Let your face shine on your servant. Words that I'm sure we instantly recognize as echoing the ironic blessing, the one we usually sing at baptisms. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What does make his face to shine upon you mean? 
Well, it means something like, may you experience God's favour or blessing. For Hebrew poetry, which does not rhyme as such, generally uses repetition to get its word over. And so it's an echo. It's saying the same thing in two slightly different ways. But there's another sense in which we can think of it. We commonly talk of someone's face lighting up when they experience something that thrills or excites them. Or delight at seeing someone. Maybe someone you haven't seen for a while. Oh, hello! How are you doing? Haven't they seen you for ages? We smile, we light up as we see it. Or perhaps it's reflected in seeing a child walk for the first time. Do our faces not light up in these circumstances? It's an expression of joy. But note carefully. The prayer is not saying or asking that we experience such joy. But that God's face might light up. That there might be joy in God's face at seeing us. Or in other words, that we might bring joy into God's presence. When I was working as presbytery clerk... I had this sign up in my office. I put it up on the screen as well. Everyone brings joy to this office. Some when they enter. <laughs> others when they leave. In truth, although it raised a few smiles and did again there just now, in reality it was not very godlike. And I now feel ashamed I had it up. <laughs> For the truth is that God never takes joy in someone leaving his presence or his side. But he does rejoice. He does rejoice in those who come to him and remain close to him all of their days. Now David was not without fault. As we were reminded just recently, and no doubt will be again next week, Martin. David was an adulterer. And in pursuit of that forbidden relationship, he sent Uriah the Hittite onto the battlefield to face death. Making him at least guilty of culpable homicide, if not of actual murder. So why is it that this guy features so prominently in the Judeo-Christian tradition as the epitome of kingship. Well, I think it's because above all he is remembered as one who from his youth was said to be a man after God's own heart. That was what led to his choice by God as the one who would succeed Saul as king. And although there were times of wrongdoing, we see in David contrition. He wasn't an unrepentant sinner, but he certainly was a sinner. But as Paul says, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we're justified 
by grace through faith. Thank goodness none of us would be sitting here today. We'd all be getting ready for the big fire. If it is indeed correct that this psalm was composed while Saul and others were pursuing David, having turned against him, then it is as king in waiting that David continues his prayer. One that asks for deliverance from the hands of his enemies, a prayer that he might not be put to shame, but that the shame be on his enemies, that their lips might be silent, no longer arrogant or contemptuous, and above all, preferably dead and gone. I think there's times we'd like to see the back of somebody, maybe not just quite as drastically as that. But I'm sure there are times when if we never saw some people again, it wouldn't trouble us in the least. It's pretty raw emotional stuff, but it's sincere nonetheless. Equally honest, however, is the passage which follows one that we don't really have time to go into today, but largely it's a wonderful outpouring of praise, proclaiming that God has nothing but good in store for those who fear him, that he is their protector, that his love is shown and made known, and above all that he hears cries for mercy and calls for help. Which is, of course, at the very heart of the Hebrews' understanding of God as Redeemer. The one who turned his face towards them when he heard their cries when they were slaves in Egypt and who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. David never lost confidence in such a God as this. And neither should we. Which brings us to the concluding stanza of this psalm. An exhortation to the people of God to love the Lord with assurance that he will bestow blessings on those who remain true to him, but with, those, with no such assurance to those who do not. Especially those who arrogantly remain opposed to God and his people. But perhaps the most glorious of all are David's closing words, words which echo God's words to Joshua as he prepared to lead his people into the promised land. The words be strong and courageous or strong and take heart. All you who hope in the Lord. For the Lord your God is with you. Wherever you go. May we indeed as Charles Wesley expressed it in his wonderful hymn. Soldiers of Christ arise. The tune of which we shall use later in the service. Stand strong. May we stand strong in the strength which God supplies. Through his Eternal long, son. 
And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace, now and forevermore. Amen.